0: Now my Savior would be stripped, mocked, taunted, and teased. The soldiers now spat on him and beat him. Jesus, the Son of God. Hail the King of the Jews, they yelled. Hail indeed. They would leave my Savior away to crucify him. To a place of the skull called Golgotha. Up the hill with the cross on his back, my Savior approached death ever resolute ever sinless ever Emmanuel God with us undeserving of it all yet taking it all for me drive nails into his wrist yet he hadn't given up he was faithful with every excruciating jab of the nail he was pierced instead of me now the other wrist instead of me and now my Savior now hanging on the cross Instead of me, Christ took the ultimate punishment, death, separation from his Father, complete abandonment instead of me. The one who was full of sin, flawed and deceitful. And now, hearing the gospel, I'm reminded of my Savior now hanging on that cross. And I see now that my sin deserves death. And my sins carry an incredible price. That the only one who could pay it was the Savior of the world. Yes, Jesus was punished instead of me, so that now I may be set free.
1: Well, all God's people said, amen, amen. I want to thank our kids uh, for helping us to worship this morning. They were great, weren't they? It's a privilege to have them. Today and next Sunday, we are focusing our attention on the three most important days in all of history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place, of course, on Friday, the the Friday we now know as Good Friday, and the resurrection of Jesus took place on Sunday, what we now call Easter Sunday. And this is such an important time um, every year for all churches And we want to make sure that we celebrate it in the best way we possibly can. Uh, We are praying that uh, many, many new friends will join us. And so I just want to ask you before we get into our study this morning, if you will do two things this week. Uh, First of all, will you invite someone to join you? Uh, We've provided some tools. You've heard about those. Uh, Surveys tell us that 70% of people say that if someone invites them to an Easter service, they'll go. And you probably have people in your life that you might be surprised. Uh, if you ask them, they would say yes. Secondly, uh, would you commit to pray every day this week for our services next Sunday? Pray for God's blessing. Pray for God's power. And then together, let's just get ready, all of us, for God to show up. And God to do some amazing things just to put on display uh, his grace and his love. Amen. 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 Well, today... We are going to be talking about what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified, what happened in his crucifixion, why it was he died. The Bible teaches Jesus died for me. We're going to be studying Mark's account today. This is Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse one. We're going to read through verse 24. And then after that, we're going to look at some actual responses of people who were there and see what their responses teach us about how we should respond to Jesus' death. So let's look at God's word. Uh, This is the word of the Lord for us today. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse one. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Amen. Jesus died for me. The death that Mark describes in these verses was horrific. Verse 15 tells us that it began with flogging. The first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us Roman flogging consisted of a soldier using a whip made of nine leather straps, and each strap would have a lead ball at the end of it embedded with glass or bone or rock fragments. They would stretch the victim out for full exposure, and they would begin to beat the flesh, almost like tenderizing a piece of meat. Many whips had metal hooks that would burrow into the flesh of the neck and the shoulder, the back and the legs of the victim and the executioner would tug on the whip making sure those hooks dug in and then he would violently pull them back ripping the flesh off the body. Josephus says it wasn't uncommon for a rib to fly off the victim's body or for their intestines to spill out of their abdomen. Many men never made it through the scourging Verse 17, we are told the soldiers put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, which they would have beat into his skull with a club. They then draped a purple robe across his back and his beaten and bloodied muscles with his bones even maybe exposed to the air. They hit him with fists, they spit on him. Verse 20 says, then they led him out to crucify him. Now he would be carrying his cross, and this would have been a cross beam. It would have weighed about 100 pounds, and it probably would have had the remains of other victims soaked into it. It would have had sharp splinters that were slicing into his lacerated flesh. It was the Persians who invented crucifixion about 500 years before Christ's birth, but it was the Romans who turned it into a savage art that they would not even use on their own people, only conquered peoples and slaves, It was so horrible that Emperor Constantine outlawed it in the fourth century in the Roman Empire. And from that time on, it was very rare until some of history's most vicious dictators brought it back in the 20th century. Hitler crucified Jews during the Holocaust. Pol Pot in Cambodia used it on his own people. And in this century in recent years, ISIS and other uh, Islamic extremists have used it in places like the Sudan, crucifying our Christian brothers and sisters. In crucifixion, you die a slow and torturous death. We actually have an English word that derives from this experience. It's the word excruciate. It means literally out of the cross and the pain of the cross was excruciating. Usually, death by crucifixion came because of asphyxiation. The victim's weight hanging by the nails would cause them to slump down and as they slumped, they would be prevented from breathing and they would have to periodically push up on the spikes nailed through their ankles and their wrists in order to breathe, but eventually they would lose strength to rise, their lungs would fill, they would suffocate and die. Josephus said it caused such surges of pain that men went in and out of shock, losing consciousness and control of body functions. And some men, to end their agony, would intentionally allow their bodies to slump and to self-suffocate. Crucifixion was also a tool of, of public shaming and control. It was always done in highly trafficked areas where as many people possible were able to see it. And thus it would also attract the, the scum of society, the thugs, the low lives, the people who would gather for no other reason but to ridicule the victims on the cross. Sometimes crucifixions would go on for days. And then after death, the Romans would leave bodies on the cross so that carnivorous birds and animals would devour the corpses, thus adding to the disgrace of the death. The Roman historian Cicero said that crucifixion was so horrific, decent Roman citizens should not even speak about it. And Josephus said that though it was rare that the Romans would actually crucify a woman, when they did, they could not stand to look at a woman's face in such agony, and so they would turn her around to face toward the cross. This is why in Isaiah, the prophecy, chapter 52, verse 14, the prophet said that Jesus would be so broken when crucified, his own friends would not recognize him. He would scarcely resemble a man. And Isaiah said that if we had seen him, we would have turned our faces away in disgust. Jesus also faced in this the humiliation of being publicly slandered on false charges trumped up by his enemies and he was also betrayed by one of his closest friends and then all of his rest of his friends abandoned him but the worst part of the cross for Jesus was not the physical pain was not the public humiliation it wasn't even the abandonment of his friends the worst part of the cross for Jesus was he was forsaken by his father All of the Jewish people would have known the verse written by Moses more than a 1,000 years before. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, and it was the thought of being forsaken by his father that made Jesus stagger in the garden. This was the reason why on the cross, he cried out in agony, my God, my God. He didn't cry out about his physical pain or about his friends rejecting him. He cried out about his father forsaking him. Just think about that. Jesus faced the worst things a person could ever face, rejected by his own people, unjustly sacrificed for political expedience, abandoned by his closest friends. But on the cross, he doesn't cry out, my body, my family, my friends. What he cries out is, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Because you see, compared to that, Everything else he endured was minor. So our question today is why? Why did Jesus have to go through this? And why was it so bloody? This is actually one of the top questions that people who aren't Christians ask. They look at the cross and they say, this doesn't make any sense. Why all the blood? It's also something that causes a lot of people trouble with Christianity. In his 1894 autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote, I can accept Jesus as a martyr. His death on the cross was certainly a good example. But that there was anything else to his suffering, say like dying as a substitute for sinners, Gandhi said, this my heart can never accept. A few years ago, there was a cover story in Time magazine that said uh, had a theologian who said that the idea that Jesus had to die for our sins he called it cosmic child abuse. He said it was a primitive idea, a, a vengeful deity that must be appeased who who vents his wrath on his innocent son. This theologian said that's not a god of love, that's the Old Testament god. That's like God in his junior high years where he can't really control his anger. But the New Testament God, he's matured now. Now he he forgives without blood. And this theologian said that's just an archaic story for a previous time written for a primitive people. We need to move on. And a lot of people think that the whole story of the cross was just invented to make people feel guilty. It was just a, a ploy used to coerce people into acting in the right ways was kind of something we actually saw around us back in 2004 when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. A lot of people went to see that movie and I was pastoring here at this time and we saw it and other places around the country saw it after that movie came out and a lot of people went to see it for a short time. Just a few weeks, church attendance surged. And it was like everyone felt guilty. It was like everybody who watched the movie said, we did that to Jesus so we should go to church. Didn't last very long. (laughs) See, some people think that, you know, we we just bring the the cross up like, you know, once a year or so, just so people will, will, will feel guilty. Well, here's my question today. Why did Jesus have to die? Why was the cross so bloody why is the cross the center of the Christian faith? Why, why, why did Christians choose that the cross become the one symbol they would be known by for the next 2,000 years? And kind of think about it. It's, it's sort of like we decided to form a club today and we, we decided to choose as our club logo an electric chair. We put the electric chair on our t-shirts and we wore those we, we put it on our necks, on a necklace, a little, little piece of jewelry. It, it would horrify anyone who saw it. But for us, that logo would mean everything. So why? Why would Christians choose this disgusting and humiliating symbol as the centerpiece of their faith? want to show you this morning three reasons that are drawn from this passage we have just read. Here's the first one. You can write it down in your message notes in the app or wherever you're taking those notes. The cross shows us Jesus substituting himself for us. This is the first and the most important reason. Now, you may have noticed in the midst of this story, actually in verse seven, we, we meet this character by the name of Barabbas. And if you've been reading the gospels, you've never met him before this point, And we never hear about him after this. We only know that he was condemned to die. He was awaiting execution. But we read that Pilate gave the crowd a choice. It was something he did every year at the Passover as a favor to the Jews, these conquered people trying to keep the political peace. He would allow them to to discover or to, uh, to choose one prisoner who would be released. And this year it was either Jesus or Barabbas, and they chose Barabbas. So that means Jesus on this day took the place of a man who was condemned to die for murder. Because Jesus died, Barabbas walks away free. And it's remarkable, think about this. It's remarkable how all of the things Jesus was falsely accused of, Barabbas actually did. It was Barabbas who had led a rebellion against the Romans, trying to make himself king. Verse 6 says that he was an insurrectionist. Jesus, on the other hand, he was the rightful king, but it was Jesus who was executed as a usurper to the throne. Barabbas was a murderer. He he lived his whole life for himself. Jesus had lived his whole life for others. He had lived in perfect obedience to God. His whole life was about giving and healing and feeding, taking care of people, and yet it was Jesus who was executed for being a blasphemer, for being a criminal, Barabbas got to walk out that day into total freedom as if he had done nothing wrong. And that means the only way to understand this quite literally is Jesus and Barabbas traded lives. Jesus got what was coming to Barabbas. Barabbas got what Jesus deserved and had earned. See, this is what the cross means for us. We actually see it even in his name. Barabbas, this Aramaic name, is actually a combination of two words. Bar means son, and Abba means father, or it means man. So Barabbas' name is showing us that he is a representative of every man. He's the son of every man. And So what happens to Barabbas is a picture of what happens to every person. What Jesus does for him, Jesus does for everyone. That's what Isaiah 53, verse five tells us. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus lived a life of total obedience Even when he's on the cross, he he cries out, my God, my God. He, He doesn't even there curse God. He remains loyal to his father. He's still praying, not my will, but yours be done. And I hope you hear it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus lived the life I was supposed to live and then he died the death I was supposed to die. He did it in my place. Jesus died for me. This is the only explanation for what is happening. Now I know that some of you will think about the cross and maybe this thought has run across your mind. Why couldn't God have, you know, just forgiven us? Just let us go. I wanna walk you through something. I want you to think about this. No one ever forgives without payment. Forgiveness is always costly. I'll give you an example. Someone bars your car and they wreck it. You have two choices. One, they can pay for the damages. Or two, you can forgive them. If you choose number two, what you are saying is not that the car won't be repaired. What you are saying is I will absorb the cost for what you have done. See, the cost doesn't just go away. Forgiveness means you absorb the debt yourself. You say, well, okay, but what about forgiveness that doesn't involve money? How does that still cost? Well, think about this. Let's say someone at work lies about you, ruins your reputation, and you end up missing a promotion you should have received. Later on, you discover this. Now you have a choice. You can go after them. You can prove that they're a liar. You can be angry at them, and you can pay them back. And even if... You don't actually do anything to them. The anger you harbor in your heart is a type of payback. You are saying through that, you don't deserve a relationship with me. I'm going to fantasize about your harm. I'm going to think bad thoughts about you. I'm going to punish you by hating you. And you may not actually do anything, but you're still trying to pay them back. And by the way, are you hearing the language we all use, pay them back we can't get away from that language because it's inherent in the reality of what's happening you have a choice and your other choice would be to forgive and if you forgive and if you've ever really had to forgive something that was you know deeply painful you know that that forgiveness is extremely costly you agree not to pay them back but to absorb the pain of their action and it is a kind of death that you go through. You are saying, I'm gonna stay in relationship with you. You will not pay for what you have done to me. I'm gonna bear the evil of your actions. And that is precisely what Jesus does. He absorbs in himself the injustice of our rebellion against God. And friends, there really is no other way that the cross makes sense. Sometimes, some people say, well, I think the cross was just a demonstration of the love God has for us. But if you think about that, it doesn't really make sense. I'll give you a picture of that. What if you were walking along a river with your friend and you're talking with your friend and at one point your friend stops and looks at you and says, you know, I don't know if you realize how much i love you i really do love you and and i want to demonstrate my love for you and then he throws himself into the river and drowns himself now what does that prove well nothing except that your friend has issues <laughs> right see for jesus to go through all of this unless he was actually doing something it wouldn't have been a demonstration of his love but of insanity His death was love for us because it was in our place. Jesus died for me. I want to turn this question around and, you know, why did it have to happen? And and do you realize this? Think about it. If you think through the Bible, do you realize that everything else God did, He accomplished with a word? When God wanted to create light, he, He didn't run into a lab, work on experiments for three days, and come out and say, here's some light. He just spoke, let there be light. And there was light. God just spoke, let there be an earth. And he created the earth. He just spoke, let there be people. And there were people. God accomplished everything with a word except this, not this. When God wanted to forgive our sins, evidently he couldn't accomplish it through a word. And what does that tell us? Well, it, it tells you my, my second point. The bloodiness of the cross is there to show us something. And I'm going to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul. The cross shows us the sinfulness of sin. Paul uses that phrase in Romans 7. It's kind of like saying the badness of bad. It's like maybe you could say there's a cold virus and a coronavirus and both are bad. But if you just call them both bad, you you don't really realize how bad the coronavirus is. So when he says, I want to show you the sinfulness of sin, he's saying, "I, I don't think you understand how bad, how sinful sin actually is. Think about blood. You know, people despise, they're they're offended by the blood of the cross, and that's actually the point. You hate blood. Blood grosses you out because sin grosses God out. It was how God demonstrated to us the sinfulness of our condition and the badness of who we were. See, the cross is what it is because our sin against God is what it is. See, many many people, they, they don't really want the cross to, to be for our sins because they don't want to see our sins as major. They, they want us to see our sins, particularly their sins, as something minor. It's not really that bad. And so we do things like we try to say the cross is just about a demonstration of love and it's not the, the penalty for our sin But the reality is, the cross is putting our sin on display for us and saying to us through the cross, This is your sin. This is what you deserve. And it might be really easy for you to look at a guy like Barabbas and say, Well, I'm not really like that. But the cross says, Think again. This wasn't just for Barabbas. Jesus didn't just die like this for Barabbas' sin. Only he died because of your sin, my sin, our sin. Jesus died in our place. A few years ago, Oprah endorsed a, a very popular book called A Course in Miracles. In that book, the author says, we, we must learn to put out the ideas of sin and condemnation. God doesn't forgive give because God never condemns. Do not make the pathetic mistake of clinging to an old rugged cross. And I want to say to you as your pastor, never quit clinging to an old rugged cross because it is your only hope. And the cross stands in absolute contradiction to that statement. The cross says, I know you don't like it, because you want to see yourself as a good person, the cross says: uh, If you want to know heaven's verdict on your life, then look at the blood. That is heaven's verdict on you and on your sin. I was trying to come up with an analogy, and you know, we we like to think things about ourselves and other people. Well, that's a good person. I'm a good person. You know, we're we're good people. We do some good things. I want you men to imagine this. Imagine if another man seduced your wife. And you somehow saw this man as he was checking your wife into a hotel. They were there, you know, checking in. And and you notice as he checked in that he gave the, the bellhop an extremely generous tip. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to be generous. But in the context of that betrayal And that unfaithfulness, an act of generosity, it seems like nothing, right? It's just trifling. In in that type of wickedness and betrayal, to be generous doesn't mean a thing. So what, what bothers you in that analogy is just a small picture of how our unfaithfulness to God seems so that even our best works, our good works are, as Isaiah 64 6 says, like just filthy rags to God, the verse says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, and we like to somehow kind of like hold up our generosity to the bellhop in front of God and, and hope he thinks it's okay, and God says, you've lived a life of rebellion against me. You wanted to make take make the rules for yourself and live your life for yourself. You wanted to use all of my blessings, everything I've given you, and make it all about You. you you cannot talk about that as if it were no big deal. See, the cross shows us the sinfulness of sin. Sometimes people talk about losing their faith because of all of the suffering and pain in the world. But when they do that, they always make an assumption They assume that this bad world is worse than all of us good people actually deserve. And they see God as the bad guy because God's like the cause of all the problems. He doesn't stop them. But the Bible says it's precisely, exactly the opposite. The Bible says this good world is better than any of us bad, sinful people actually deserve. In the cross, I see God's verdict on my sin And you know what? The fact that I got up this morning, that you got up this morning, the fact that that you are breathing air, that your heart is pumping blood right now as you sit in that chair, that is an act of God's generosity and mercy and grace. A lot of times people look at what we call natural disasters, earthquakes and floods and tornadoes, they happen around the world, and you know, people, people die, sometimes thousands of people die, and when this happens, you'll see all kinds of people saying things like, where was God? Why did God let all those people die? And, and I don't want to belittle tragedy, I'm not demeaning tragedy at all, diminishing it, but the Bible's better question for you and for me right now is, why did not an earthquake level Tracy last night? We have no claim on God's grace and mercy. See, if God is just, if this is what our sin deserves as we look at the cross, then it it puts the entire world in an entirely different light. There's only one penalty that fits our rejection of God, and that penalty is death. And Jesus' blood shows us that. That's why Jesus died for me in my place. The cross was as bad as it was, because our sin is as bad as it is. There's another truth kind of on the flip side of this. And some of you may be thinking right now, well, I just don't feel like God could forgive me for the things that I've done. They're so bad. You must understand also that the cross was what it was so that there would never be any doubt about how deep God's forgiveness actually goes. See, if the cross had just been minor, then, and then maybe you could say that sin, my sin was so bad, Jesus' death didn't cover it, but the cross in reality shows you that no human being has ever walked on the face of this earth, that the death of Jesus is not sufficient to cover their sins. That's why Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore, he is able, say able. He is able, he is able to save completely, those who come to Christ through him. So please hear me if you struggle with this. There is no sin that puts you beyond the reach of God's grace. And the reason we know that is Jesus died in my place, in your place. You may find yourself thinking it's humility to say, My sin is so bad, God can't forgive it. In reality, it's an insult to the death of Jesus. He suffered like He suffered so that the sinfulness of sin might forever be held high, put on display. He suffered so that you and I could always see how amazing the grace of God truly is. Do you know? Someone said this, I don't know who first thought of it, but do you know the only man made thing in heaven? will be the the wounds of Jesus. That's it. That means for eternity, there will be before our eyes a demonstration of the greatness of the mercy and kindness and grace of God. Here's the third reason. The cross shows us where God is in our suffering. I heard a story a few years ago about a seminary student. His name was Richard. He had come to faith in Christ through Campus Crusades, now called Crew, and he ended up going to seminary, felt called into ministry, incredibly bright young man, a great writer, had a very bright future. While he was at seminary, he fell in love with a girl and they got engaged he was offered a job by a major Christian publishing company to become like a chief writer for a magazine. It was this huge deal. Never happens to seminary students. They, they wanted to publish his dissertation. His future was incredibly bright. And then in December of the year that he graduated, his life started to fall apart. First, his parents... Began the process of getting a divorce, and he prayed and he prayed for six months that God would keep them together, but it didn't happen. And, and then his mother developed terminal cancer, and she died three months later. And then his fiance left him for another guy. And then that job was given to a lesser qualified uh, candidate who was the son of a company employee. Everything in Richard's life fell apart. He said one night he got alone, and He was thinking, I have to meet with God. I'm asking, where is God? And he decided he was gonna pray all night long. He started at about 11 o'clock and he said, I prayed and I wept and I sweated until 4 a.m. And at 4 a.m., he said, I stood up and I said, God isn't real. He said, I went I got my dissertation and I went outside to my grill and I turned it up and I laid that dissertation on the flames and I said, I, he said, I have never had a more gratifying feeling than to watch that burn. It felt so good. I went and got my Bible and I burned that and I felt liberated. I got everything that I had with the name of Jesus on it and I burned it all and he said, that night I was born away from Jesus Christ. Where is God in suffering? What do you you say to someone like that? Now, the cross doesn't tell you all the reasons that you go through suffering, but it does tell you what the reason is not. The reason for your suffering is not that God has abandoned you. And we know that because The cross, that God cannot have abandoned you. You see, in the cross, we see that it's not that God doesn't care. It's not that that God is the cause of pain. The cross shows that God himself enters into our pain. He endures our suffering with us. If you're philosophically minded, maybe you're wondering, well, how does that explain the problem of evil? I'm not telling you it does. I'm just telling you what it's not. It's not. Evil and suffering, they're not the abandonment of God because only God himself could have gone through this and overcome this and accomplished this. So whatever else you want to say, you must see that the reason for suffering and evil is not that God doesn't care or that God isn't there. Even the atheist existentialist philosopher Albert Camus recognized this. This is what he wrote in his essays. He said, Christ, the God-man, suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in our the history of man only because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege, lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. Let me put that this way. If you have a God great enough to be mad at for not preventing evil and suffering, you have to, at the same time, have a God great enough to have reasons for allowing evil and suffering that we cannot discern. Can't have it both ways. God is either infinite or he's not. Well, You say, well, how do we know if he has a good reason? Well, Camus actually is saying that though we can't know God's reasons for allowing evil and suffering, we have this remarkable assurance that he does have reasons. That that he himself has infinitely suffered with us, for us, on the cross. And the cross therefore proves that he is not indifferent to evil and suffering. John Stott, the British theologian in his wonderful book called The Cross of Christ, said this. He said, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. He said, in a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Again, I, I cannot explain to you all the reasons why people suffer. But I can explain to you that it is not that God is has abandoned you, that God is not with you. God knows, God cares, God is there. And we know that because of the cross, because in the cross, God has taken on himself the deepest pain. Again, Jesus was uh, betrayed by his friends. He was publicly humiliated. He was the victim of the worst injustice. He was left alone and abandoned and and he died. And the truth is, if if he did it all for you, then you can know, be assured that he has not abandoned you when you are in pain. See, the cross shows you that even when it was our evil that caused God pain, his arms remain wide open to us. And that's why you must always cling to the cross in the midst of pain. We, we never understand how much God loves us apart from the cross. Now, before I wrap this up, I want to I wanna show you how you will respond to the cross and, and basically it's gonna happen in one of three ways that are all in this text and the, the first way shows up in Pilate. Pilate embodies the first response and Pilate we see he's more concerned about the crowd's opinion. It's kind of an interesting thing that scholars have puzzled over. We see this, this Roman pagan centurion and he's convinced of Jesus' innocence. He says so, he believes in Jesus, but we also see that Pilate is more concerned about the crowd's opinion maybe you remember this scene from that movie, The Passion of the the Christ, where uh, Pilate is in his chambers. He's arguing with his wife. And his wife says to him at one point, you know, you know Jesus is telling the truth. And Pilate says, I know he's telling the truth. But then he points outside to the angry mob and he says, but those people are my truth. In other words, deeper to me than the question of Jesus is this other issue over here. See, I cannot think of anything that describes more people in our culture than Pilate. There's so many people who will say, well, of course Jesus was a good man. Most people say he was the greatest teacher who's ever lived. Very few people want to see themselves, I mean, almost nobody would wanna see themselves as like part of the crucifixion team that they say, I believe he is who he says he is but I don't believe in him enough to let him turn my world upside down. I have a deeper truth and my deeper truth is success in my career. My deeper truth is finding the right kind of relationships or family and achieving the things that I have set out for myself that I want to achieve. And so, you know, like if Jesus can come and and he can fit into my life what I want to do, great. But if not, well, I'm not that interested. And people like this, they, they try to wash their hands. They try to say, I believe in Jesus but they don't give enough weight to that question. See, the cross is telling us that the most profound question you will ever face is what do I do with Jesus Christ? That question is more important than whether or not you ever get married, whether or not you succeeded at a job or you have kids, and those kids, they grow up to be great people. The cross tells you the most important question is what you do with Jesus. There is no greater truth Dante, in his Inferno, has Pilate in the lowest part of hell. He is still trying to wash his hands, still trying to get Jesus' blood off them. Well, there is. There is a fountain that will wash that blood off. It's the cross. You see, Pilate reminds us we can't put Jesus in a category The Bible says Jesus is Lord, and that means you must surrender to him as Lord of everything. Or on the other hand, if you don't, you join the crowd that says crucify him. He will not come to you in any other way. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You you cannot have it another way. We see a second reaction in the religious leaders who are only concerned about their pride and power, and and they're actually the ones behind the crucifixion. They're they're always the ones who are behind most of the evil in the world, and you might say that's kind of a funny thing for a pastor to say, but it's actually true. Some of religion's critics, like uh, Nietzsche and Foucault, they're exactly right about religion when they say that religion caters to people's desire for pride and power, because you know, when you feel religious, spiritual, you feel like you're superior to other people, and it's like I'm better than them, so therefore I can look down on them. And that means usually I think I can have some power over those people. And that's why the religious leaders hated Jesus. It says they envied him because Jesus wouldn't allow their pride. See, in the cross, the cross kills your pride, the cross shows you have no reason to be proud. I mean, how, how can you say the cross is what I deserve and still remain proud? See, a lot of people, they love religion, but they hate Jesus because Jesus strips away their quest for pride and power. The only real reaction I think that Mark's account allows us is ironically that of Barabbas because Barabbas just believes and walks free. It's so unbelievably simple, it looks like it can't be true. He, he just believes and walks free. Now, I'm not saying that he believes in Jesus. We, we don't know whether or not he ever did. I'm talking about what literally, historically, in reality, actually happened on that day. Barabbas was released. He walked free. Now, some of us, we don't know what to do with what Jesus says he wants to do with us. And kind of imagine this scene. Imagine the guard that came into Barabbas' cell and he told, he told him, you are free. But imagine if Barabbas said, well, no, I, I need to stay here because I need to repay my debt to society. The guard says, your debt is done. Jesus paid it for you. There's nothing left to do, just walk free. And Barabbas says, well, no, no, I, I want to become a good person and I, I want to stay in myself so I can work on myself, you know, and become better and, and, and get some good habits, be a good person, then I'll go free. The guard says, hey, if you want to become a good person, well, you can leave and do that, but just walk free. And that's really ultimately, finally, the only response you can have to the gospel. There is nothing left to do just believe just walk out of your prison cell of sin just believe and walk free you don't need to stay there any longer you can't stay there any longer jesus paid your debt he paid it all just walk free now i talk to people all the time who don't really get this. And how do I know? Well, it's because they are, they are living insecure about where they stand with God and they'll say they believe in Jesus, but they're unsure. And it ends up, you talk to them, it's like, it's like they look at Jesus like he was a, a lone officer. I mean, a really nice one. But he's like a loan officer and it's like, it's like they come to him and it's like we, we've got this huge debt of sin and you know you want him to take you to heaven so you wanna work out a deal with him and you, he says to you, this loan officer, okay, I'll take you to heaven but you have to do this and you have to do that, this and that and you say, I can do that and you go off and you try to do that but you know it doesn't take too long, maybe a year or so, you mess it all up, Right? And so you have to come back to the loan office and you have to say, I totally messed up that last loan. I need to renegotiate. I need to get new terms. And he says, well, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'll always receive you. So here's your new terms. And so you say thank you and you go out and you mess it up again, Right? and you return once more, you do that whole thing over again, and some people think Jesus is is like a loan officer who's always here for you, always available to help you work out a deal that will get you to heaven, but here's the deal, here's the truth, the gospel is this, friends, listen, there is no deal. There is no deal. Jesus has destroyed the deal. You, You just believe and walk free. Believe and walk free. And this means if you are insecure about where you stand with God, insecure, unsure if you know Him, unsure if when you die you're going to go to heaven, that means you don't understand the gospel. Because the only way, the only way to show you understand the gospel is you stand up and you walk out free. You believe and you walk out free. And you know, there's a lot of people who hear this and they say, that sounds kind of dangerous. I mean, if Jesus can't threaten you with judgment, he can't control you. I mean, he needs to have the hell card to hang over you all the time to get you to do what you need to do. Actually, it is this that makes his claim on you total and complete. Just walk free. There was a woman who was not yet a Christian who once said, you know, I realize that if there is any part of this Christian thing that I could do, then I would feel like Jesus owed me and I could still negotiate with him. But because Jesus did it all, his control, his claim on me is total. And see, this claim will change you like nothing else will. Some of you are living your life. You're just always trying to change. You're working so hard. You're making all kinds of resolutions. And you find it just never works. It never holds. It never sticks. And the reality is this. No change you can make will ever take away the two things that dominate every life. And those things are pride and fear. Pride is I have to show I'm better than other people. I'm smarter, more successful. Uh, I'm a better person. And every religious change you make is you trying to set yourself above other people. Fear is I have to have their admiration and approval. I I have to control their opinions about me. And no religious change will ever affect those two things until, until the day that you understand the gospel. Until the day the cross finally makes sense and you realize in that wonderful moment the fact that Jesus had to die for me destroys my pride. The fact that Jesus was glad to die for me destroys my fear. And that means, therefore, I have nothing left in which to boast. I have nothing left in which I need to fear. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Jesus died for me. He died in my place. And that's good news. Good news. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? As your heads are bowed, um, I'm confident I'm talking to some who didn't understand the gospel until today. And maybe, maybe today for the first time, it makes sense that Jesus died for you, not to inspire you, not to help you. He died to take your place, to take your punishment for your sin. And I just wanna affirm uh, that unless you are sure of where you stand with him. Unless you know that the son has set you free, that means you're still lost. And and I wanna give you a chance this morning to just believe and and to be free. Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Not might be, but will be. And it's not just a prayer you prayed. It's believing. See, the gospel is this, that Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live and he died the death you were supposed to die. And if you believe that, and you are placing the weight of your life on that reality, then tell him right now, Jesus, I believe. Just tell him, Jesus, I want to receive your forgiveness. I I turn from my sins and I turn to you. I believe you are the son of God. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. And if, if you have embraced that today, Just express that in prayer. If you have trusted in Christ, would you tell someone, maybe me, maybe one of our other pastors, maybe the friend that you came with, but let them know what God has done in your life. Father God, I pray, I pray for those who have, had the light of the gospel shine this morning into their prison cell and they now know they can walk out free. I pray that they would live in that freedom, Lord. I pray that you would empower them to begin to, to know you in ways they've never known before. And Father, I pray for those of us who have trusted you, but we find ourselves sometimes retreating back into our prison.